and welcome again to Submitted for Your Approval, a Twilight Zone podcast. And with me today, uh, my guest is a, an actor, a writer, and a director. He's a performer and teacher at the UCB Theater, which, uh, for those who don't know the acronym, it's Upright Citizens Brigade. He has videos on Funnier and Die, the UCB Comedy, a YouTube, and he was in a group of other television roles. He's also the author of a book that I want to get, which is How to Be the Greatest Improviser on Earth, a book on how to do long-form improv. A special short-form introduction to Mr. Will Hines. Hello, sir. Hi, Brandon. Thanks for Hi. having me. No problem. How are you doing today? I am doing, um, you know, solid 7 out of 10, I'd say. Okay. All right. Uh, which is good. Uh, that's that's all, that's that, I'm get up every morning hoping for a seven, so I'm psyched. Uh, excellent, excellent. And and you know we, we're getting the ratings out early, and I think that's important for everyone out there. Yep, that's right. Uh, you're now you're in you're in Los Angeles now, right? That's right. Where are you? Uh, I'm currently I'm in on a business trip in Colorado. Nice. So, but normally Hawaii. Oh, cool! I didn't know that. Great. Yeah. So so I go from really nice weather to it's freezing. Yeah, uh, <laughs> back to nice again. Yeah, um, but you could be. Our, Colorado's very outdoors. You could be like, I feel like you should be like hiking and smoking legal marijuana and just like talking about something real spiritual. I don't know. I, I picture Colorado as a real kind of crunchy, be outside place. You know, you know, it is. It is a very be crunchy place. Is <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, like just outdoorsy. I mean, here in the Springs, it's you're like a mile away from the sun. So you're in you Colorado know. Springs. Yeah, right now I am. That's near NORAD, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, Shine Mountains just right around the corner. Yeah, you can maybe get in there and you know screw some stuff up. You know, just try to introduce some chaos into the world. Yeah, yeah, and you know it, it's it's weird because every once in a while you'll see Broderick running around. Um, he's from War Games. He's still the fictional yeah. character that he played in War Games is still running around. Yeah, he's he's still running around. It's it's the damnedest thing. Uh, they're they're like signs out on the highway. Like, watch out for Broderick. <laughs> so. uh, um, but uh, yeah. So, but you know, speaking of speaking of air force nice. type stuff. Nice, uh, <laughs> nice, nice force transition. We are talking about the Odyssey of Flight Thirty Three today. Oh, such a great uh, episode. I love it so much. Yeah, it's it's really I, I I do like it a lot, and especially about the uh, their their dialogue in in the the cockpit there. Oh, it's so good. I had never seen this one, I don't think, or if I had, it's been so long that I forgot it. So I watched it for this episode just today, and it was I was I loved it. It's so great. You were you were you were you blown away? I'm trying. Uh, to- Trying to get an airplane joke in there. It's not going to work. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it, I guess it really took off. Uh, and, yeah, um, there, yeah, thank you. Thank you. That's why That's why you're the professional. That I'm. That's right. <laughs> Buy my book, everybody. It's just full of wordplay and, uh, and, and conversational transitions. Excellent. Uh, and, so that, and that's why I'm going to buy it. So, uh, All right. So this, this episode aired February 24th, 1961. Stars John Anderson as Captain Farber. Paul Comey as First Officer Craig and Hart McGuire as Flight Engineer Parcel, directed by Justice Addis, teleplay by Rod, Rod Serling. And uh, here, the synopsis goes a little something like this Global Flight 33 is making its way over the Atlantic Ocean on the way to New York. When the flight hits a speed pocket, uh, they manage to break the sound barrier, 
the pilot and his crew look out the window to see a brontosaurus i think or a diplodocus i don't know which one whichever one doesn't exist anymore yeah uh, they've gone back in time right uh so they decide that the only way to get back is to hit the same sound barrier um once they bust through they, they try it again they manage to make radio contact with idlewild airport laguardia uh, airport the, laguardia airport oh laguardia oh thank you Good, good call. Good call. See, that's why that's why I bring guests on to <laughs> to fact check me. Um, so yes, uh, Laguardia and Laguardia for some reason can't can't guide them landing wise. Their their instruments aren't matching for some reason. Yeah. And uh, so as Flight Thirty Three is about to land on the runway, the pilot notices that where the United Nations building should be, the World Fair is actually, and that's when he realizes, oh crap, they're still in the past. 1939, to be exact. And uh, so the pilot radios up the crew, the passengers, and says, hey, we're going to try again. And maybe next time, they'll be right. Yep. The end. Yeah, it's <laughs> uh, crazy. So, so Mr. Will, uh, what are your thoughts on the episode? I mean, I loved it, first of all. And uh, like with every Twilight Zone episode, with every good one, and most of them are good, um, I'm just struck by how good the beginnings are to like grab your intention and like make you like want to know what's going on. You know, it's just like it's some of the most patient and confident presentation of an intriguing thing that you want to unpack. Like the time travel thing is revealed pretty late in the episode. The the thing that you find out first is that the plane is for some reason that they don't under, understand going very fast, like that happens first, right? And there's a good there's a good chunk of it where they're just like, why are we going so fast? Like when you know when Rod Serling steps in to say now we're in the twilight zone, all that's happened is the plane has started to go fast, and that's enough to keep you hooked. You're like. It would be scary if you're in a plane, you're the pilot, and suddenly you're going seven times faster than you should, and you don't know why. That is like – but everything feels fine. Yeah. It's just such an awesome beginning. It's just such a great grabber. I loved it. Yeah, and, and, and I like how the pilot, the, the one who's clearly the most experienced, is like, I think we're going faster, guys. Right. Like, the, he- the, the first time that something is amiss and they play like a little quiet violin underneath – like there, are, there's there, the, we open just on business as usual in the cockpit, and we just see them sort of talking jargon about flight speed and how long till we get there, and everything's going great. So we kind of hear how they talk to each other, and mm-hmm. then the, then all of a sudden there's this like low violin that goes da 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 da, but we don't see anything different. And the pilot makes a face, and he's like, "Anybody feel that? Anybody feel like we're going like something's off?" And he can't even put his finger on what it is. And yeah. that, that's when things begin to go awry. It's a really small and subtle start. Yeah, I, I agreed, agreed. And, you know, like, uh, I, I think that this is one of the episodes also where you're right. Like, it's, like there's an attention grabbing, but it's a very subtle attention grabbing. Yeah, like, it's no. a lot. Most, the first third of this, or maybe even more, it's just the five guys in the cockpit talking. We don't see what they're looking at. We don't see instruments. I don't think we even go to the passengers yet, or if we do, it's very briefly. And it's just, and there's not a lot of sound effects. I mean, the budget on this could be just the cost of hiring these actors. Like, the 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 production effect is so small, but it's completely compelling. I, I think that's interesting that 
uh, this episode uh, differentiates itself as well because uh, they they focus on the, the technical jargon and like they're the episode resides on the backs of professionals, right? These are professionals that something's weird happening to. And yeah. they're, they, they haven't done anything bad or anything wrong. Nothing to be... Yeah, this isn't comeuppance. This isn't like you deserve it because of your reckless behavior. It's just we are... This is a show where weird things happen to people. This, the scene, the conversation that really stands out to me is when there's a character who is referred to as Magellan... That's his nickname. I think he's like the navigator or something like that. He seems to be the guy that's like mapping out how long it'll take them to get to airports. That just seems to be his job. Probably something that a computer does now. Yeah. Um, and the, and the pilot calls him Magellan, like with a smile. It's like a it's like a friendly nickname. Magellan, how long till we get to Idlewild or whatever? Um, but when things start to go awry, the pilot notices it first. And there's this great exchange where it's like. He's, Magellan, you notice anything weird in our speed? And he says something like, that's oh, 700 true airspeed. Wait a second. Doppler says, this can't be. That our ground speed is 800? But that's not even possible. That must be a mistake. And like, you know, you and me, Brandon, we don't know what that jargon means, but okay, we're told 800 is not possible. Then a second right. later, he's like, wait a minute, it's already up to 900. I can barely keep up with it. And then the captain says a little bit more, and then the Magellan pipes in, Sir, we're up to 3,000, and that number is so scary. We don't even understand the jargon, but we've been told that 800 is not possible, and now we're at 3,000. And it's scary. And here's guys who are supposed to know how to run a plane. They have no idea what's going on. You can totally imagine how terrifying this would be um, to not to have all of a sudden the plane is doing things that are not possible, and you don't understand why. Uh, they make a distinction between airspeed and ground speed. So if they look out the window, it looks normal. But over the ground beneath them, which they can't see, is moving unbelievably fast. Mm-hmm. It's it's so savvy of Rod Serling to know this is a compelling story. We don't need to show the ground moving fast. We don't need to have a lot of razzle-dazzle. This is a scary thing. And if and if people, are, people who are watching will be scared. And it it is scary. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I find it's it's interesting that aside from the dinosaur that they see out, out of the window, every every description they have of coming down out of the uh, the overcast is just is their description them looking out the window. It's almost like a them- radio play. You're almost just hearing them talk about it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But the dialogue is so good and specific. It's like just smart enough to be interesting, but not so technical that you're like left out. Like. They're, Rod Serling is very good about making sure you understand exactly what's going on and what the meaning of every sentence is. It's really satisfying. Yeah, and and uh, so Robert Serling, Rod's brother, uh, worked was as a, as an aviation editor for uh, United Press International. Okay, uh, and and so he helped he helped write some of the the dialogue for it to oh, cool have have it be as realistic as it could be. Oh, uh, nice. And uh, you know we. Ghostbusters, when you know they're they're speaking their their technical stuff and they're they're trying to wrap us into their world, uh, you know it 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 feels real. Yeah, you know even though it's 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 a comedy, um, right? But this is this is real, but it still could be like they could just spout nonsense and right. We don't have like, enough knowledge to know for sure whether it's fake or not, but it it definitely has like it sounds real, like it has like a real whiff of authenticity to it. 
And of course, with every Twilight Zone episode, the thing that all fans of the Twilight Zone feel, uh, I imagine, is like there's just nothing like a good story. Like, and this guy Serling just had a real nose for a good yarn and how to tell it. Like, you know, the famous aspect of every episode where Serling like talks right to the camera. That shouldn't work. That should be intrusive. That should break the pace. That should like ruin the reality. But the truth is, when it make he knows he's got a good story in his hands. You know, the plane's going eight hundred, nine hundred knots, three thousand knots. Then we got Serling. Um, the pilots haven't done anything wrong. This side or the other. But flight thirty three has just entered the twilight zone, and we go to commercial. And I can't, I can't wait to find out what happens. Because there's just nothing like a good story, man. Like this, that that never goes out of style. No, you're. I mean, you're you're absolutely right. You know, in in Serling, his his presence is such a grounding factor for us. You know, yeah. Like he 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 keeps us there and says, you know, okay, you and I, we, yeah, we know that s- we're we here. see what's going on. Uh, but let's let's explore what's happening to these folks on this plane. It's fun to think about where the ideas come from in Twilight Zone episodes, like. We've all been in planes when there's turbulence and the pilot comes on and says, like, sorry, we hit a little turbulence, but everything's fine. And you in the seat are like, didn't feel fine. It felt, like, intense. I mean, I'll trust the pilot, but it certainly felt like a big deal. And here's an episode that's like, what if what was going on was something insane and they just weren't telling you? Because at two different times, the pilots get on the speaker and just tell the people that everything's fine. But it's not fine. Like – supernatural things are afoot and they're not they're not talking about it yeah like every time we're on a plane and there's turbulence the pilots are just going oh crap oh (laughs) god right yeah (laughs) if every single time there was turbulence you actually went back in time and the pilots aren't telling you and they have to get you back into normal time (laughs) and that happens every single time there's turbulence that's what this episode is telling us every single time and that's why that's why they get paid so much yeah, I mean they're 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 physicists. They're 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 Einsteinian physicists who are who are managing the time streams. That, oh my! Hey, that's a good that's a good idea for a story. Yeah. Yep. Come on, Rod, get on it. Yeah, get on it, Rod. Yeah, too too soon, maybe. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, what, what is it about the Twilight Zone that you like, Brandon? Why did you do this podcast? Just a, a sense of progressivism uh, that pervades the the show. I feel like that, like I've I've drawn from that in a way. I don't know if that makes sense. I, yeah, um, Twilight Zone and Star Trek both live in my head as like shows I would see in reruns as a kid, and they their their universes are very moral and just. Um, bad behavior is usually punished, or has some consequences, um, and it examines sort of the consequences of bad behavior. But this yeah. episode, this episode is not a moral one. This is more just like bad things happen to good people, or more like weird things happen to good people. Yeah, just that, like, just just that. There's a, uh, you know, there's there's more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of by your philosophy. Just like there's a lot of things out in the world that uh, we don't know about. This is still a big world with unexplored things. Like that's one of the assumptions of the twilight zone that's really fun like if you travel out of your normal path you there's no telling what might happen to you because the world is a big and wondrous and strange place 
Um, I really love the I love it when the pilots have to fess up and tell the passengers what's going on. Right. Like like they could have they could have just crashed, run out of fuel and crashed and be like, "All right, cool, we didn't tell anybody." Um but yeah, like just like the the jig is up, like we have to we tried once. Well, they flew yeah. they flew over dinosaurs and didn't say anything, and we don't see what the passengers make of that. So we don't the, know how they're rationalizing that there's a bunch of dinosaurs on the ground. Right. The, the the only time we see the passengers right is a couple times with the the flight attendants and then I guess the a British maybe he was in Royal Air Force uh, I I forget what what military he's branch in the he was Royal in. Air Force and he also senses that something's wrong with the plane probably because of his aviation experience. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. And, and so I mean all their windows are open too. They can see they can see outside the window as well. Yeah. So so I I, I can imagine that the the passengers have to have seen something. Yeah. Big ass, big but ass dinosaurs. We don't deal with it though, until they, they, the pilots realize they've gone back in time. They go up into the sonic boom. They successfully get through it again because when they descend, they see New York City where they used to see dinosaurs. Now they see New York City. So they're like, "We did it. We're we're back. We undid it." Except that. They didn't. They didn't totally undo it. Instead of coming back to 1961, they've come back to 1939. Yeah, but that kind of makes sense. If there's just like a time storm, it's not like just a switch that can flip back and forth. You have to be precise, and they didn't ride it long enough or whatever. Yeah, it and it brings up an interesting question that I had, which was, you know, if at what point in time do they, you know, they try again? Right. Yeah. Do they? Do they? Like, how close can they actually get to the right time that they're supposed to be? That they'll right? accept. Like maybe yeah, they they want to get to 1961. If they get to 1963, is that good enough? Or 1959, right, right. is that good enough? Like, uh, we're five minutes off of when we we're supposed to be back. Back up. Do it again. <laughs> <laughs> try try it again. It's like when I'm editing. Sometimes I'm like, ah, that's that's close enough. <laughs> well, the, uh, the there was the very final shot. The very final narration is well, – the final shot is of the speakers that with the pilot's voice saying, you know, finally disclosing what's happened. We went back in time. We don't know how. We have thought we came back, but we're in 1939, so we're going to try it again. And then they're pulling up into the air, and it just the passengers are left to be like, what? What's going on? But then Serling's narration says something that's really cool, which is – you know, uh, flight 33 is overdue. The search parties have gone out. The families are being notified. But we know where it is. It's lost in time trying to get back. Um, and it's almost like it makes you think about missing flights that you've heard about in real life. You know, like the Malaysian flight that just vanished. Mm-hmm. And like, just like, oh, did are, are there all the missing flights? Do they all still exist somewhere trying to get home? It's like a... Almost like a fairy tale ending. Yeah, there's just like there's just uh, a limbo airport that they've all just landed on. Yeah, and they're like, oh, it's well, such a good such a good idea for a story. It, it reminds me a little bit of the Langoliers. Do Do you remember that? You know, it's funny. Somebody just mentioned it to me yesterday. It's a Stephen King thing, right? I, I've never seen it. Yeah, yeah. So, so like the airplane lands, like 
out of time, I guess. And so they, they're at an airport and then they find that, um, like no one's around the air is stale. They open up like uh, soda cans and the, the soda is stale. Uh, cigarettes don't light. And what they, they figure out eventually is that they've landed it backwards in time. But, uh, what, what happens is the Langoliers, the, the titular characters, they're basically like time eaters. And so they're eating time. So there's no actual past. There's just oh. always these things that are coming and eating the past. Oh, weird. Um, but only, only vaguely similar to what we were just talking about, but <laughs> it always reminds me of that because time travel in airports. It's in the same kind of world of just flying back into time somehow. Yeah. Um, so so if, if they... If they land like a like a day before they take off, right? Or yeah. like a a day after they they take off, like what what kind of implication would that have? Yeah, uh, all time travel logic falls apart if you scrutinize it too much. Like any sci fi story where there's time travel, if you chase the logic down even a little bit, it all starts to fall apart. So. I like to think what those characters would do. I think the pilot would just be like, well, we'll just sit here for 24 hours and then report, then we'll get off the plane. Like, we're going to wait for stuff to get back. In. He he was just a problem solver. You know, he wasn't he wasn't worried too much about what caused it. He was just trying to solve it. Mm-hmm. He was just trying to be a good pilot, just trying to get his plane to the destination on time. Right. As as a, As we expect of our pilot professionals, right? Uh, because if he's freaking out, then, then that's just, uh, just leadership in general, right? Like if, if he is the leader and he's starting to freak out, then that's just going to make everyone bust into a panic. They don't have a lot of fuel left at the end, right? Do we, I think they die. Like they, they run out of fuel and crash is what I think happens to them. Yeah. That's always, that's always been my thought about this episode. Like, like they, they, they have enough fuel for maybe two more attempts, I think. And right. then, they, then they have to land. Like no matter where it is, so uh, ho- so hopefully they land in like twenty twenty seventeen. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean I want to see Global Thirty Three. Yeah, like hey guys, we've been waiting for you. They did an episode about you. <laughs> when he when he first when they when they when they first arrive in nineteen thirty nine, close to the end of the episode, you know they've they've escaped from the land of the dinosaurs. Um, and they are, they they raise LaGuardia on the um, radio, and they're so excited to get a human being on the other end. But then LaGuardia doesn't know, hasn't heard of their flight, doesn't know what a jet is, does hasn't heard of any of their equipment. There was a second there where I was like, when the, when the radio guy's like, "Oh, we're Global Thirty Three, I wanted to be like, "Oh my God, you vanished fifty years ago. We've been waiting for you." Like I wanted them to have gone in the future. Yeah. Uh, but I, th- I, th- I think the choice they made was even more compelling. Do you think um, they should have just landed in thirty nine and been like, "Well, I guess this we're just here now. I guess we have to do yeah. this." Yeah, I guess we got to go uh, World War Two again. Let's do it. Or should they land, refuel, and then go up and try it again? Like they know how to do it, right? Yeah, that's a that's a good that's a good question. Or maybe they I, think I, there's just a small window where it's possible or something. And and I wonder like if the fuel quality is the, the same. Well, because. Because uh, the folks at LaGuardia are like a jet, a, you know. Yeah, they've, the, they've never heard of a jet. So it, does it take the same kind of fuel? You know, those are. Um, I, I I have a I just had a thought with, um, 
last flight of season one episode where where the World War uh, One pilot or World War Two pilot he goes up into a cloud and he and then he lands in the future. Um, and then so that that whole episode he lands in the future and then he's trying to convince people that he's from the past. Um, and then the person who he ditched his wingman that he ditched in the past is now a, a big general and he's coming to that base to to see them and he's like he couldn't have happened he would have died because I left him I was a coward yeah um, and so then he he's like no I have to go back and save him he gets back in his plane he flies into the past and then the general shows up and he's like oh yeah no he I thought he was a coward but then he came in at the last minute and saved my ass um and it's a same same airplane theme same kind of time travely thing um I, I don't know it is yeah. this is maybe it's a stretch but it's like almost like hey that's a that's the same that's the same cloud they found the same cloud good for them <laughs> um what uh, do you have any other thoughts uh concerns about the episode observations one more is there such a thing as a jet stream that can make a plane go unnaturally fast? Like, is it that breaking the sound barrier made them go back in time? Or was there a supernaturally fast jet stream that hit this plane? Um, well, they, 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 know, they know what the sound barrier is, right? They know what you know, Mach, Mach 1 is. They know what it is. Yeah, there's like, they even have gear that warns them that they're getting too close to it. Right. So, so if that would mean that, you know, they know that breaking the speed barrier doesn't necessarily mean that you're going back in time. Uh, so I would say, I don't know, the, it would have to be unnatural to me, I guess. If, if they don't even know what's, what's driving them. Um, I've, on the Wikipedia page, they have the opening narration of the episode. And it's just so good. Uh, I'm going to read a couple sentences from it. What you've, se- what you've seen occur inside the cockpit of this plane is no reflection on the aircraft or the crew. It's a safe, well-engineered, perfectly designed machine. And the men you've just met are a trained, cool, highly efficient team. The problem is simply that the plane is going too fast. And there is nothing within the realm of knowledge or at least logic to explain it. Like, I love that. It's, I, I feel like I've done a little bit of trying to write stuff in LA and one of the things you're told all the time is you need an active protagonist. The protagonist has to cause his own problem, his or her own problems, you know, and that's got to be reflective of an inner emotional journey. And that is true, or that makes sense at least. But for just a half hour short story, a plane that just starts going too fast and the pilot is trying to solve it without telling the passengers, that's I don't need anything. I don't need an active protagonist. Yeah. Uh, in you know, it's not even those. The episodes are m- at most twenty five minutes, you know, uh, and so there there has to be that economy where you're like, okay, let's just let's get a, let's push a good story out, build the characters as much as we can, but the story itself has to be good. The foundation of it has to be great. Um, would would you if if you were to say this was a a season four episode where they they boosted them to an hour. Would you, would you try to develop those characters more? Like, what would, as as a writer, how would you go about that? Uh, that's what would you change or? Yeah, I think you, we we would need more. We would need more personally about those guys. Like, you know, 
was some of them in the war and some of them not, or some of them younger and some of them not, as one of them trained not on a jet, one of them's only flown on a jet. Um, you know, what what are what does this situation bring out of them emotionally? Does it like make them disregard the younger guy, or is the younger guy able to think outside the box more than the old fogies? Is there a by the book person, or is there someone who insists they got to try to be do something crazy? Um, and and with every Twilight Zone episode, I want the female characters to have more to do with it. Like that's really makes them all so dated. Is that the women are basically told to shut up all the time? Yeah, like it really stands out. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't uh, I don't disagree with that. Uh, that that's a common theme to make them like shrewish or. Or just be like, yeah, okay, whatever. They just shoved off to the side. Like, I mean, you can tell that Sterling's a good writer. Like, there, there's specific details and personalities, even of the flight attendants. But they're just concerned with getting dates. I mean, you know, one of them wants to see the opera. One of the there's good. There's some rich details in there, but. They're just never really part of the story. They're they're often that's not true. That's not always true, but they're they're often not part of the story. So I don't know. Yeah, and and I don't know if that's the the result of um, you know a, a a a male worldview or male perspective, right? Like maybe not knowing how to write for uh, female characters. Um, I think it might, it's partly that, and probably just the time. Like there were no women pilots. So if you want to write a story about pilots, it's not going to, women are not going to be the characters. Right. Um, and, and even in, even in like the invaders, uh, where she carries the entire episode, she doesn't say any dialogue, I mean, which is part of the twist, of course, but yeah. Um, still like don't have to write for, her. she's just going to do everything herself. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, we did have, uh, Ida Lupino who, you know, she was in season one, and she directed an episode of season five, and so you know, in some ways, yeah, uh, they, they were trying. Twilight Zone is not alone in in that in having their female characters uh, sort of be off to the side. Like, I, I don't, I don't think that Rod Serling is far off of a lot of other people. It's just, I don't know. It, that's just the nature of time, you know, and 50 yeah. years from now, the TV shows of today will look dated in some weird way. And I'll be like, wow, they really mistreated trees. Oh, it's not the same. That's a terrible <laughs> analogy. Um, but you know, there'll be something that we are blind to right now. That'll be so obvious to the future generations. <laughs> I, I, I would love it. I would love it if they, they talked about trees in that, in that way. It's yeah. I, I, Oh my god, look at those evergreens. That's that's not how evergreens look. Yeah. Dumb future people. They don't know. Yeah, they don't know. They don't know. Um, <laughs> so you you've watched uh, a lot of episodes, right? Uh yeah, I've uh I mean so far I've watched um this will be 40 something, 50, I think. Uh but I mean I've seen I've seen pretty much all of them. Um there's probably a couple that I've missed in general. Um but how how does this part, how does this rate among among them? Uh, so uh, usually I ask I ask my guests usually how how to rate them, but yeah, you beat me to the punch. Oh, sorry. You you flew right past me. I <laughs> uh, got it. I got it. Mm, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I I'm throwing out a, I give it like a I give it like a seven and a half. Harryhausen's 
Um, um, out of ten. Out of ten. Out of ten. Yeah. It's pretty solid. Uh, because yeah, yeah. No, it 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 is really solid. I I do. I think uh, some people might not like ne- necessarily that kind of dry uh, technical speak. Um, it kind of reminds me of that movie Primer. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I, I, I weirdly read the Wikipedia summary, but I've never seen it. Okay. Yeah, like it's it's a time travel story, but like everything they talk about is just very, very technical, very scientific, and it's a very thoughtful movie in in that way. But it's also very dry because it's it is like scientists talking to each other. Um, so that can appeal to some. Uh, I don't know if it would appeal for everyone for this episode, right? So I. So I'm kind of, yeah, seven and a half. I'm going to give it eight. I'm going to give it a nice solid eight. Yeah. How, 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 does it, how does it fall in with other episodes that you've seen? Like, you give it an eight, obviously, but. I think it's really um, strong. It just doesn't, ha- it doesn't have like that iconic moment or character that'll, that makes it like one of the representative ones, like Burgess Meredith or William Shatner or like. It's just, it's a little, it's a little shy of being like mind-blowing enough that it's one of the ones you you know that that represent the whole series but it's really good it's a really strong episode there's a couple episodes in the first season that i think are a little too cutesy for me but this doesn't have that problem this is a great one do do you have a do you know offhand which ones those are that there, was like, ones? there was like one of like an old, a salesman who's like it's like episode two or three okay yeah and he meets like death or something is on the on his route or something like that or the devil maybe or something, right? Yeah, right. And then he tries to sell him silk ties and uh, to save a little girl. Yeah, yeah. And um, it, that's like a little hokier than other ones. Yeah, th- I think those ones are like uh, they are like more they're more along the lines of fantasy. Yeah, and so so they're like ah oh, let's, um, yeah, more fantasy. We'll just stop there. <laughs> um, all right. Well, hey, I appreciate I appreciate you talking to me about the episode. Um, it, it was really great having you. I do want to ask you a few questions about your about your stuff. Oh, okay. Your your. Uh, you don't have to. Do you feel like you have to? Do you feel like you just have to to be like a polite I, host? I don't. I don't feel uh, like okay. I have to. I feel okay. like I want to because. Okay. I mean, beyond the episode, I, I'm really interested in the the. Imp- improvisation stuff right? okay yeah because uh, i i did i did it with uh our carrie way back in the day in in high school oh cool and and uh th- there was always folks who were way better at it than than i was and i think everybody even people who are experienced like yourself probably feel that way still yeah i think that's right um but uh it's it's always it's always interested me uh so i just wanted to really i just wanted to just talk to you a little bit about it um you have your you have your improvnonsense.com yeah. uh and you also have the improvnonsense.tumblr right that's yeah yeah that's exactly right it's like a blog like that i did for many, or several years writing about improv yeah yeah well, what what is it what is it about improv specifically that that really appeals to you i guess um i guess i like that it's um a combination of like nerdy theater stuff where you like get to try to be a better actor but then it's a good helping of being a wise ass <laughs> smarty pants like those two things both appeal to me you know trying to be like yeah. a vulnerable open present actor 
that whole thing appeals to me sort of like in a spiritual way. And then also just trying to be funny and witty and kind of like competitively funny is funny to me also. Being yeah. a wise ass, like those, those, the yin and yang of that. I really like that combo. Is, is there, is, is there an aspect of competing, uh, comedically? Like when you get, when you're in an improv scene with another, uh, actor? Yeah. I mean, I don't, there's not supposed to be like that's improv is built on cooperation, of course, but, right. um, I mean, I think part of the fun of it is like, am I going to contribute in a, in a fun way? And when somebody does something funny, I think it naturally stirs up an urge in you to like also do something funny. I mean, I think a little one-upmanship is, in a small dose, is a is a healthy thing. Mm-hmm. Just just enough to make you want to like do well. Not so much that you hurt the show or steal focus, but a a little drop of, well, I gotta I gotta do my part is a, is a good thing. I I got I got you. Uh, like, what, what, um, what was the improv like that you did? What was it like in high school? So we did uh, comedy sports. Okay. Okay. Um, and and so it was just it was basically just those are games. They would, they, yeah, like the the games. Like uh, you have like the two teams, whatever. And then like you have the different games. Like oh, you're pick, seen out of a hat or uh, similar similar kind of um, whose line is it anyways esque stuff. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so yeah, I just one one of the art, uh, articles I read on uh, your site was about getting out of your head, right? The, yeah. the whole like, yeah, you know, just just kind of letting go, uh, thinking about times where you were more confident and, and stuff like that. Right. And and I I, I could never get past that uh, in the the comedy sports area. Okay. Like I could do it like you know with a with a friend or if there's like a a group of people that I know, like I can, I can do it. No problem. Gotcha. Um, and I think that's the opposite of what you were saying on on your, where like if you're, you feel more comfortable doing it around strangers because there's not that pressure. Yeah. For me, it was weird. I I realized that I liked it better. I I could get out of my head around strangers. Yeah. But, oh yeah. No, go ahead. No, I was just going to say like, are you, would you, would you consider yourself an, an introvert by trade or an extrovert? I think I'm an introvert more or it, it, I don't know. I, I think that categorization might not always work. I, I, th- I have the, co- I, I'm a control. I think actually I'm a control freak extrovert. Like I think I like being around people, but I like it on my terms. <laughs> so like I like the intro, I like being alone by myself cause then I control my little kingdom of whatever's around me. But, um, I get lonely. I like talking to people. I like being social, but only I'm very fussy about who I spend time with and how. So uh, I think I'm a fussy extrovert. Actually, that's my answer. I'm a fussy extrovert. <laughs> you're you're a controlled fussy extrovert. Yeah, I think that's I think that's accurate. Yeah. No, I, I've seen I've seen that that that's a new classification. Yeah. That they just released. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I I mean I ask because like if I go to like a new class or a new office setting, it takes me like two to three weeks to to feel comfortable around any of those the the people, right? Okay, I'm yeah. Trying to gauge their yeah. trying to gauge their sense of humor. Yeah, I really yeah I much, relate to that. I I know what you're saying. How much they'll tolerate me? <laughs> 
And so like a fresh audience, I don't know how they'll, t- they'll tolerate me. And so that immediately like shuts a part of my, yeah, my con- I can imagine. I, I, I see what you're saying. I, I think I used to feel that way too. Um, uh, th- then I reached, I think that's just doing it more though, because w- once I did it more, even, even though the audience was technically different every time, I, I usually kind of knew what to expect. I'm like, well, uh, th- it's just one big audience kind of, um, mm. There's only a certain type of people who come to see an improv show. It's not like I'm going to like the clubs on the road and then to like alt improv places in the city and then like down south. I mean like improv is such a small world. The audiences are all kind of the same. They're they're similar enough at least that I started to get comfortable. Um gotcha. I'll say this, gotcha. I think I think that introverts and extroverts like improv like you need you need both types in any good group you need like sort of shy quiet introverted people and you also need kind of loud mouths um any good group usually has both personality types um because they're both sort of good at different things so i think the extroverts seem comfortable at first but inevitably you need both right Right. Ultimately, you need both. I mean, um, yeah, I, I, I can, I can see that. Uh, I sometimes you have to, sometimes you have to pretend like you fill both of those those roles. I think. Yeah. Uh, um, which which is where you know you get the. And obviously, we're 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 generalizing, but you know when you have your outgoing introverts and your, um, your shy extroverts, right? Right. No, where you're where you're kind of like you're. Like okay, I'm I'm compensating for what this group is is missing. Um, you, you you've written how to be the greatest improviser on earth. Yeah. How, how much of your experience have you used from from teaching improv, uh, performing? Like what what was the kind of um, the catalyst for wanting to push this book out? Yeah, God, I, I wish I knew. I um, it, it didn't feel like there was any one signature event. Like I had a blog that I liked writing in, and then, and it was popular enough that I just wanted to make like a permanent record of that blog. I kind of knew that I was going to stop doing the blog. I guess it was just that I had a blog that was successful, and I wanted to translate it into something that might be a little more permanent. Mm-hmm. And so. It was just to preserve this work that I had done in a blog, I guess. But um, I didn't feel like I could just cut and paste the blog. I felt like I had to, like, digest it and reorder it and rewrite it. And things things kind of seem different in book form than they do in blog form to me. Um, And so, you know, then all of a sudden I'm in the middle of doing that, and then I just wanted to finish it. Uh, So I, I I, I guess it was... To have done something a little permanent was why I did it. Were, were there any revelations that you had about uh, your your career while you're writing the book that you didn't necessarily have while writing the blog? Yeah, yeah. Um, it made me, in a good way, I think, doubt everything that I'd ever taught. Like it made me doubt myself as a teacher. I was like, wait a minute, do I know anything? Like when I would write it in a blog, 
a blog just seemed more forgiving. You can just kind of like a blog can sort of be like, here's something I was thinking about. And that feels acceptable. It's just like the day's op-ed column or something. Mm-hmm. Just sort of, but then when you write a book, it's like, I'm carving this into stone. This had better be like a maxim that is true. And I found that I had very few maxims that felt true. You know, I could have like a million sort of like thoughts that I can just entertain. But for like good tree trunk support beam maxims, I didn't, I didn't have that many. And like it made me really like have to be honest with myself about which of these dozens and dozens of things that I like to think about, which of them are really, which of them can really hold weight? Which of them could people step on and support themselves with? So I'd say it mostly made me like pare way down what I had to say. The the blog is like 600 pages. The book is about 120. Gotcha. So so you had to, so you had to take it, you had to kind of digest it and say, okay, what, what do I, what, does somebody who's reading this book for the first time need to like something yeah, solid the, to, to latch onto, right? Yeah. Just like what's something that somebody can read the book and then take away from it and, and it'll be true. Like what's, what's true. Like, I don't know. Improv, when you teach it, you're very reactive. People do a scene and then you give your assessment of it. So you're just being reactive. You just kind of, you can get away with just being an honest assessor of a thing that a group of people all watched together. Mm. But that's different than being a book where the reader hasn't seen anything. You're not reacting. You have to be proactive. You have to say, think about this. And then here's why I asked you to think about that. And it's like, it's different than, than teaching. Yeah. Would you, would would you say that uh, blogging is, is more of an improv esque act yeah, it feels more. It does. It feels more like back and forth with your audience. All right, like you, you, you write a blog post, you get comments, and then you know you, you're reacting to what the the reader likes to likes to hear. Or likes I think to read, even right? more, a blog is just like a newspaper, and the newspaper is just like, here's what happened today, and here's what we think about it. And my blog could be like, I saw this in class today, and here's what I think about it. Mm-hmm. But a book kind of has to have a give its own reason for existing first. I th- I think I'm yeah. Anyway, so it's like yeah, um, yeah. A blog is more improvisational. The medium is it's more like disposable and interactive for sure. Uh, a blog. Yeah. Um, okay. Well. Uh, well. How how can how can people get? A, I've already mentioned the website, but how can people get a hold of you? And uh, and check out your book and your blog. My book's on Amazon, or you can get it at my website, improvnonsense.com. I'm on Twitter at uh, at Will Hines, W-I-L-L-H-I-N-E-S. So I think those are good ways to get in touch with me. All right, awesome, awesome. I'll make sure to put those in the show notes so anybody out there can can read more about you and uh, interact with you. Thanks, man. All right, so, so thank you so much. I want to... Sincerely, thank you for coming on the show and talking to me about this stuff. Uh, it's been a it's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you, Brandon. And for everyone else, there's a few ways to get a hold of the show. I'm on Facebook.com slash S4YA podcast, Instagram S4YA underscore podcast, Twitter S4YA underscore podcast, email S4YA podcast at gmail.com. There's a lot of S4YAs, so that's how you know how to find me. Call 860 Pod if you are interested in that. 
And, of course, I am on apatheticenthusiasm.com as well as geekade.com. Head over there, search for Submit of Your Approval, and check it out. Also, hey, I'm on iTunes and all those other uh, podcasting apps. Feel free, to, feel free to check them out and then leave a rating and then be like, hey, oh, my God, it's the best, or oh, my God, it's the worst. Uh, either way, I will accept it. Uh, but until next time, thanks again to my guest, and this is Submitted for Your Approval. 